It's so good to be with you today. And for those of you who don't know us, we're Tim and Sarah Brown. We're part of the 930 community here at King's Arms and been here about three years and married for 24 in July. We're involved in many different areas of church life. And one of the areas we're passionate about is healthy relationships. And we're going to talk today about how to relate well to each other. As we've seen and heard about relationships that have suffered so much through the last couple of years through the pandemic. We aren't just talking about marriage here, but all kinds of relationships. So family, friends, work, church, etc. We were created for community. We're wired for relationships and we're made to go through life together with others. The Bible says this in Romans 12, 5. Christ makes us one body and individuals who are connected to each other. In the words of those uh, relationship gurus, uh, Sister Sledge, we are family. We are all connected in some way to others. But here's the problem. It's easy to get disconnected in relationships from your parents, from your brothers and sisters, your husband or wife if you're married, and even from your friends. And so today we're going to look at what causes that disconnect. Why do relationships fall apart? Why do relationships go bad? What destroys them and how do you rebuild? How can we have healthy relationships? Over to you, Tim. Thank you, Sarah. Learning how to have healthy relationships has so many applications in so many areas of our lives. You can apply it in your marriage if you're married, in your family, with your friends, at your workplace, in your small group. Sarah and I have both been married before and we're passionate about restoring relationships and helping others learn from our mistakes. There are many causes of relationships breaking down and becoming unhealthy. They are the enemies of community, the very essence of how we're called to live life. Today, we're going to look at three issues in particular and look at the antidote for each one, the quality that can help you start to repair and strengthen your relationships. So first of all, selfishness. Selfishness destroys relationships. It's a major cause of arguments, a major cause of divorce, a major cause of the fracturing of friendships, families, and sadly churches. Look at James 4 verses one to two. What causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. Now, it's very easy for selfishness to creep into relationships. And generally, we're very unselfish at the start of a relationship or friendship. But as time goes on, selfishness can begin to creep in. So, for example, Sarah, when we first started going out, bought tickets to see Bruce Springsteen, even though she's not a fan. And halfway into a two hour concert, I'd lost track of the time she asked if it was time to go yet. I'm sure you agree that was a pretty selfless gift. Having had such a bad time, it would have been easy for her to be selfish, but as you'll hear later, that's not what happened. So if we know that selfishness destroys a labor relationship, why can't we be more unselfish? Well, I suggest there are a couple of reasons. First, selfishness comes so naturally because it's human nature. It's human nature to tend towards being selfish. You see, I don't think about you most of the time. I think about me my needs, my interests, my hurts, how do I look, how do I feel, who's hurt me? By nature, I think of me first, not you. And it's usually the same for you. We may not like to admit it, but most of the time that's how we live life. 
And not only are we naturally selfish, but we're also influenced by our culture to be selfish and self-centered. Look at adverts. We're bombarded by messages that self, self, self is what counts. Don't worry about others, just do what you want to do. The famous Nike campaign, just do it. You might also remember this advertising slogan by Sprite, who came up with, obey your thirst. Now, if that's not a selfish, self-centered attitude to life, I don't know what is. Think about it, obey your thirst. That says, do whatever your urges tell you. Don't worry about the, the after effects, whether it hurts anybody. Don't worry about whether anyone's bothered. You're an animal. Obey your animal urges. Obey your thirst. Live for yourself. Don't worry about what it does to everyone else. Consequences, who cares? Now, if, now if selfishness destroys relationships, then what's the counterpart to selfishness? What builds relationships? Selflessness builds them. So what does selflessness mean? It means I'm thinking of myself less and thinking more of you. So remember the boss, Bruce, not Tim, obviously. Well, it would have been easy for me to not buy Tim tickets again to go and see him and put my needs first. But what I actually did and do is still buy Tim tickets, but I encourage him to take a friend, preferably, can't say it, one that shares his enthusiasm for Bruce Springsteen because he does a four hour gig. In Philippians 2, 4, it says, look out for one, one another's interests, not just your own. That's selflessness. It brings out the best in others. It builds relationships. If you start acting selfless in a relationship, it encourages the other person to change because you're not the same person anymore. They respond to selflessness in kind. I'm always reminded of Tim's dad when I think of selflessness. And the way he always picked him up from gigs and clubs when he was growing up as they lived in the middle of nowhere, rural Nottinghamshire, I think. And it didn't matter what time it finished, Ray would always be there in the car waiting for <coughs> Tim. And that's now the way Tim is with our youngest son, Noah, who lives at home, who we pick up and take to work as we now live in the middle of nowhere ourselves, in Houghton Conquest. This comes with a sacrifice, as we pick him up when he finishes work, in the early hours, or needs sometimes to be dropped off at 6am. So he works in a bar and restaurant, so his hours are quite unsociable. But we wouldn't think, and Tim wouldn't think less of, uh, think of doing anything less than that. They begin to relate to you in a different way. Importantly, selflessness not only transforms a relationship, it also transforms you. In Galatians 6, 7 to 8, it says, The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others and ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for it in his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvest a crop of real life and eternal life. So good. And notice it talks about the person who plants in response to God. What does that mean? It means we respond the way God would respond. How would Jesus handle this situation? How would Jesus, how would Jesus respond to this attack? You can't do this on your own. It also says we must let God's spirit do the work in us. We can't do this naturally on our own. We can only do it through the power of God that works in us. The scripture also highlights this being a growth work. It's not going to happen overnight, sadly. You don't all of a sudden learn to be unselfish by being zapped by the selfless ray. That would be great, wouldn't it? There's only one way you can do it, and that's with God's spirit in you. The passage says the reward that comes to the person who responds the way God would respond. They will harvest a crop of real life and eternal life. We are most fulfilled when we give ourselves away. 
Those who learn to give their lives away will know what it means to really live. And we experience that, what real life is like. Think of what Jesus said in John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came so that you might really live, so that you really would live life to the max. So how does that happen? It's by trusting him, letting him work in you. It's only as he works in you that you will be able to live a life of unselfishness. Anybody can be unselfish every once in a while, but God wants us to live a lifestyle of unselfishness. And the only way we can do it is if God's spirit is in us doing the growth work in our lives. So good. The second thing that destroys relationships is pride. It says this in Proverbs 13, 10, pride leads to arguments. Now pride can show up in a lot of different ways. It shows up in criticism. If you're critical of other people, if you tend to be judgmental of other people, if you tend to look down at other people, the reason you are critical and judgmental is that you've got a problem with pride. If you tend to always compare other people's houses, their children, their jobs, anything, if you think I could do that better than them, you've got a pride problem. That comparing spirit, that judging spirit, that's all about pride. Sometimes it comes out in a stubborn streak. If you find it hard to say, I'm sorry, if you start choking on your apologies, see them as a sign of weakness. If you can't ever admit when you're wrong, you've got a pride problem. We've already shared one story about my family and I'm going to share another which is not quite as positive. So when I was growing up, my mum suffered quite badly with mental health problems and was often prone to really bad bouts of anger. And when she did, my dad's response would often be to apologise at the drop of a hat. And even as a child, I could see that actually he'd done nothing that he needed to apologise for. And I really struggled to work out why he was doing that. And over time, I began to see it as a sign of weakness. And subconsciously, I guess, I made the decision that I wouldn't be like that because it was so unfair. The problem was, I swung to the opposite end of the spectrum and gradually it became the case that I would never even apologise when I was in the wrong. And what made that worse is that I just couldn't see it. I was too proud to apologise. You see, one problem with pride is that it's so self-deceiving. Everyone else can see it, but we can't. And until we realise, it can damage our relationships. Well, if pride destroys relationships, you're probably thinking, what builds them? The second thing I want to talk about is humility. That's the antidote to pride. Humility builds relationships. Listen to these five things that build relationships in 1 Peter 3, 8. It says, live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other, have compassion and be humble. Those five really are built on the fifth one, the ability to be humble. It's interesting though, isn't it, that the first one is live in harmony because that's what God wants in relationships. He doesn't want this uniformity where we're all the same. He wants the harmony of us all being different, yet living together in community. Yeah. We aren't robots, we're all unique and because of that, we need to acknowledge the uniqueness of others and acknowledge their worth, that's humility. So how are you and I going to grow in humility? How does that happen in our lives? 
Well, it happens by letting Jesus begin to control our thoughts and hearts and attitudes and reactions. He's got to be part of this. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 23 to 24, let the spirit change your way of thinking and make you into a new person. If you want to have more humility, it's really simple. Spend time with Jesus. He's humble. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you and I to spend time with him in prayer and reading his word and talking to him. He is humble. He recognises your worth. The more time you spend with him, the more humble you become. And that builds healthy relationships in your life. There's a third struggle that we all face. And again, uh, you may not be aware of it, but it's the struggle of insecurity. Insecurity is another thing that destroys relationships. Look at what Proverbs 29, 25 says in a very famous verse. The fear of human opinion disables. When I'm so insecure that all I think about is your opinion and what you think of me, that puts limits on my life. And what's the problem with that insecurity? Why does insecurity disable relationships? Well, when I'm afraid, it causes me to try and control my surroundings and my relationships. It's always easier, again, like pride, to recognise that better in others than in ourselves. And what's beneath that control? Well, I suggest it's fear and insecurity. You know, it's an amazing dilemma that as human beings we face. We long to be close, but we also fear being close. We want intimacy, but we don't want it. We long to have intimacy with others, but we're also scared to death of having intimacy with others. Insecurity prevents intimacy because it's born out of fear, a fear that the price is too high. So what do we fear in relationships? Well, I'd suggest we fear a couple of things. First of all, we fear exposure. We fear that someone's going to find out what we're really like, and we fear that. So we hide ourselves. This is man's oldest fear going all the way back to Adam, the first man. Remember in Genesis 3? Notice what Adam says to God after he sinned. He says, I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. When we're afraid, we hide ourselves, we cover up, we wear masks, we pretend to be people that we're not because we fear exposure. But there's a second fear even deeper than that and it's this, we fear rejection. And this might be the greatest fear of human beings, the fear of being rejected. We've probably all been rejected at some point and we know how much that hurts. And so we fear it happening again. We close ourselves off and we say, I'm never going to let anybody hurt me again. And we build up walls. Maybe you've been hurt by rejection. Maybe you've been rejected by somebody, a boyfriend, a girl, your best friend, a parent, maybe maybe even your spouse. And you've felt the sting of rejection. Maybe it's been by a teacher or a coach, someone you looked up to. And sadly, maybe even a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Christ. I felt afraid of being rejected and I discovered it was one of my greatest fears. When my marriage broke down, I guess deep down inside I was carrying a lot of shame and that turned into a fear of rejection. Rejection by my friends, but particularly rejection by God. And for a long time that played out in me staying away from church, 13 years in fact. And even when we made the decision as a family to come back, I felt crippled by that fear of rejection. It was a struggle to even set foot into the big building because I was worried that when people found out I was divorced and remarried, they'd ask me to leave. One thing really helped, and that was knowing I was in good company because Jesus was also rejected. 
In Isaiah 53, 3, it says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. If anybody understood my fear of rejection, it was Jesus. And he would say, don't build up a wall. Don't put yourself in a self-imposed prison when you won't let anybody get close to you because you're saying in your head, I'll never let anybody hurt me again. You'll find out like me that you're making a terrible mistake. All of a sudden you're not living, you're just existing. You're missing out on the joy of community and fellowship, the kind of community where you can be yourself, warts and all, free from fear. So I'd say take the risk, have the courage to risk to love again, to have that courage. Because if you take that risk and open up your life and lower the barriers, you come alive again in a way you've probably never experienced. Coming back to church for us was massive. I felt like the prodigal son who fearful of rejection by his father, but in reality, only received acceptance despite his failings. Our story since that moment has been one of redemption and restoration, and that has been lived out mostly through our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with our brothers and sisters. Now, don't misunderstand us here. We're not saying you won't ever be hurt again. We're not saying that. But I do know that God gave everything, even though he knew he would be rejected. Jesus went to the cross for people who would not only reject him, but despise him. So we would encourage you to ask God for the courage to take that risk again if, if this resonates with you. If you're living in fear, is that really living? So if insecurity destroys relationships, what builds them? We all know the answer to this. Sing with me. All, all you need, need is, is love. <laughs> love builds relationships. Look at 1 John 4, 18. Love has no fear because perfect love casts out all fear. If we're afraid, it shows that his love has not been perfected in us. How does that work? How does love expel and drive away all fear? Here's what it does. It takes the focus off of you and it puts the focus on the other person. That's how it makes a difference. I notice that when I get nervous, it's because I'm focusing on me and what I can do in my own strength. When I start thinking, oh no, what if I say something stupid? What if I'm misunderstood? What if, fill in the blanks. Even in preparing this talk and recording it, I started to question and the what ifs started to come to mind pretty quickly. When I start thinking of people I'm in relationship with, I want them to have a deep understanding of how much God loves them. And that overriding feeling helps fear go out the window. In any relationship, when you feel nervous and insecure, start to focus on the other person. When you begin to focus on the other person, how God sees them and try to see them as he does, it's no longer about you and fear disappears. And how do we find that power to focus on other people? As we just talked about earlier, we can be very selfish by nature. But by focusing on how much God loves us first, that's how. We realise that he loves you, he loves me more than we could ever imagine. The moment you begin to realise how much God loves you, then you realise you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to spend your life trying to impress other people. The pressure's off. Do you know how enjoyable it is to live life that way? All of a sudden... My identity, your identity, our self-worth, they're not caught up in what we think. Instead, they're caught up in our relationship to Christ. I'm not pressured by anybody else's expectations anymore. Well, where do you get that kind of confidence? We know how much God loves us and we put our trust in him. God is love. 
As we live in God, our love grows more and more perfect, so we will not be afraid. This confidence grows. It's a lifelong process. It's a journey. It's something that grows little by little every day. If you expect complete confidence tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're probably going to be disappointed. But it's something you can grow in. Like I said, little by little, day by day. You can't defeat insecurity overnight. It doesn't happen for any of us that way, but you can take the first step to it. How? Begin to strengthen your relationship with Jesus. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to a kind of love that can throw fear out of the window of your life. So there you have it. Number one, grow in your love of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that lives in all of us. Two, swap selfishness, pride and fear for selflessness, humility and love and you will see your relationships begin to flourish. In short, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we become like him and enjoy the kinds of relationship the Father wants us to have. So Tim, what should people do if anything we've talked about today has perhaps raised issues and they'd like prayer or help in any other way? Seamless segue there, Mrs. Brown, I'm liking your style. Well, I'm a member of the uh, wonderful pastoral team which Sarah's subliminally plugged there. Um, So I would suggest that you contact pastoral at kingsarms.org. We have lots of people who would love to pray with you and help you to walk through some of the stuff that we've talked about this morning. Thank you.